You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 42 is Carla Kane of the Bay Area band The Corner Laughers. You're right now hearing some of Midsummer, a track from the current 2015 album Matilda Effect. And our first song for discussion is going to be Queen of the Meadow from that same album. And we're going to look at the home-recorded Don't Hush Darling, a charity single from 2016. Then look back to Grasshopper Clock from the Poppy Seeds album 2012. We'll conclude by listening to another track from Matilda Effect, Fairy Tale Tourist. To get these albums for your very own, check out cornerlaffers.com. And here's Carla. How are you doing this morning? Pretty good. So I will have played some of Midsummer by your request. Nice way to introduce to get right to Matilda Effect, the 2015 most current album. Do you want to say a little about, I know this is number four. You've had a pretty consistent lineup and the same producer for the last three albums and, you know, a very regular every three years, something comes out. Where are you at with this one? The every three years regularity has not been intentional at all. It's just worked out that way for some reason. The first album was from, let's see, 2006. Wow, that's a long time ago now. That lineup has changed a bit. I guess on each album, the lineup's changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Matilda Effect, yeah, came out in 2015. And that's me on vocals and ukulele and miscellaneous and Koi Wen on bass and keyboards and guitar and Casey Bowman on guitars and Charlie Crabtree on drums. That's the lineup that's we've been playing with since about 2009, 2010. In terms of the arrangements, I mean, I guess that first album, I mean, the arrangements are pretty developed. The production is pretty damn tight. Was that actually your first recording or were you in another band before that? That was my first band, the only band recording. The producer of the first album is our friend Aaron Madsen. Mm-hmm. Millions and millions of bands. Yeah, that, that was the first. It took us a while to make kind of on and off. And then it seems by the album before this, we're going to talk about the third song from Poppy Seeds was full-on, major label quality, super tight, very, very layered, vocally, instrumentally, etc. And then this last one seems like it's almost moved laterally from that. Like, it's different in certain ways. It has some more, I don't know, 50s elements. We're going to hear on this uh, Queen of the Meadow, but it's not any. It's not really any bigger. What were you sort of shooting for? Or do you even think in terms of, is it more song by song, you think? Or do you think in terms of the package? I tend to think more song to song, but with that last album, I think there was a little bit of intention to make it not simpler or more stripped down necessarily, but more kept to just us rather than maybe fewer guest artists, fewer overdubs. I mean, there still are a lot, but it's a little more of the core us, a little more like we sound live, even though there's still plenty of (laughs) overdubs and guest stars too. So the song Queen of the Meadow, can you set that up for us? I know this was the one specifically where you had called out the Matilda effect, the scientists not getting credit for their work. (laughs) And that comes through in the first little bit. But then it seems like the rest of the song is more talking about how hard it is to have a young kid now as you do, or what's going on here? (laughs) Basically, the way that song unfolded is exactly as the song is written. When I was writing it, I, I had a newborn baby and I was sitting out in our backyard with her listening to the radio and there's a, a science show on and it was an author talking about how he had a new book about Henrietta Leavitt, who was an astronomer who made all these amazing discoveries and didn't really get credit in her day for doing that. And I think the guy even maybe said verbatim, Henrietta Leavitt never got the credit for measuring the stars. And that just stuck in my head right away. And I guess set it to a melody and the rest just sort of followed right from there. You know, it's partially my thinking about about her and that and then just thinking about what my life was like right then. So, you know, you have a new baby. It's a whole new part of life and it can be really lonely and hard and amazing, too. So that's how that came about. Father, the scandal, the 
things evolve just you and your ukulele and that's the whole song and you can play it acoustic and then the rest of the band is contributing to the arrangements or what do you go into this with typically i would say yeah when i'm writing a song i usually have it pretty complete before i take it to the rest of the band and it can be acoustic or not but of course often they'll add things to it arrangements or maybe they'll be a bridge added later or something like that. But I tend to be pretty self-contained with songs. It seems so many of these things, the dual lead vocals, the harmony, which jumps around quite a bit, is often much busier. It's, it seems a very, I don't know why I was thinking 50s with that, but that particular style where, you know, your melody is going mostly straight and then you've got a much more jumping in the in the harmony. I mean, is that something, again, that comes out in the course of the recording or is that right there from the beginning, that you're kind of picturing it in an Everly Brothers or whatever the equivalent style? Quite often, I'll put the harmonies on the demos when I make them. I really, that's one of my favorite things about recording. I really like adding on layers of harmony. It's really fun. Sometimes we'll add even more parts when we're doing the final recording, but quite often they're from an early stage just because it's something I enjoy. Well, I saw in some live video of you that you drafted a female backing vocalist just to be able to cover those parts. Yeah, well, when we play in England, over the past few years, we've gone quite often and we have some friends there who are great musicians and they've sort of become our British band members and one of them is great at singing all those parts. And then back here at home, we have a friend who's also played violin on some of our albums and sometimes she'll sing with me and that's really fun. But otherwise, Coy and Casey also do a lot of live harmonies. Of course, it sounds different than me singing, but it's also fun. Well, like I noticed on the previous album, it seems like Coy is doing more vocals. I thought maybe you had added a member just for that album, but just looking at the credits, like, no, no, it's just him. <laughs> what determines, like for this song, whether he or somebody else in the band gets to do a backing vocal? Is it just kind of what you've worked out, what's going to sound best? I don't know that we really plan it <laughs> in advance. I mean, if I've written harmony parts for myself, then I'll probably do those on the final recording. But then if someone comes up with something, when we're practicing live or getting ready to record, then we'll throw that in too. I often feel obligated if I've, at least if we've worked it up live and I've made the other people learn these parts, then I feel like, yeah. yes, I could do them myself in five minutes, but... I guess it depends. <laughs> like sometimes we haven't actually started playing them live until later. And then we kind of work backwards and come up with different parts that way. Yeah, I guess it depends. If we've been doing the, sh the songs at shows, then they'll work themselves out that way and we'll use those parts in recording. And if not, then 
figure it out later. Yeah, I guess it depends kind of what you see as the essence of your performing persona or recording persona. That one guy just interviewed recently for When in Rome, like that was a duo as a live thing, just two vocalists. But from the recordings, you wouldn't necessarily even know that. It's just could be one guy harmonizing himself. Right. And it probably would be quicker just to do that. But if the focus of their shtick is to have two guys jumping around together on stage, then that's just a completely different thing than the fact that you really like a dual vocal thing. I also, you know, really like the backing vocal thing and kind of have gone back and forth between, well, I'm still going to be the singer songwriter and get people who play instruments and maybe with various degrees of willingness, will do the backing vocals that I teach them. Or are you going to enter into a band that has like another lead quality vocalist for that purpose? Because you really care so much about the backing vocals that if you couldn't have them live as good as they're on the recording. It's not even going to be the same. Yeah, it's definitely different, but not that different. You know, as long as there's harmonies <laughs> coming from somewhere, it's good. Put them down an octave, it's fine. It doesn't have to... There is a lot of fun in having a bunch of people on stage singing together that when you're listening or recording in the studio, it doesn't necessarily have to be that same type of fun, you know? Sure, yeah. I guess that's another thing. I mean, when you do have the other folks sing with you, is it pretty much still, you're just recording one at a time, you've got your lead part down and you're pretty much coaching them to line by line to get them to line up with what you have? Or is it where at least... Maybe the lead is down, but now we're all singing the backings together. So it sort of has that feel. We both. I think it just depends on the song. I think that the camaraderie of that second method has now with autotune, you can't actually do that. <laughs> yeah. Because you can't fix it. I used to always, when I would coach people on backing vocals, I would sing the part with them, you know, sitting five feet away. But now, now I can't fix any of those. Those are. <laughs> <laughs> has the most potential for humor. So that's always good. Sure. Yes. So many of your songs, like just everything is so slick about the production, unless it was a specific, I can't think of if you actually have a song that does this, you know, crowd vocal effect where we're doing the the call and response thing or something. And it's not supposed to just sound like another pristine voice that is there at some level of volume, but, but it's a qualitatively different. Now the party is answering or something. Yeah, I think we probably do have some like that too. There's one on Poppy Seeds that's Transamerica Pyramid, which is mm. kind of like a Beach Boys inspired vocal part at the end. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, we all where we tried anyway to sing those parts, you know, like the Beach Boys really would all together. Sure. I'm sure it was a lot of outtakes of laughing, but you picture the Beach Boys doing that all together. I think I had read the Beach Boys well certainly like every part was recorded like four times and overdubbed. Right. But I don't know if that means the whole group sang four times or each individual person and the tracks would stack. Like, can you even do that in an analog world of, you know, 1960, whatever? I don't know. So instrumentally here, I guess anything in particular about the development of this, how aggressive is the, as producer, Alan Clapp, is his responsibility here to get a clean recording or what? These sound very produced, but what does that actually mean in these terms? This is one where, like I kind of said, this latest album, we sort of mm -hmm. tried to rely less on production and overdubs and things like that. So this is one where he pretty much just wanted to make sure that we got good recordings. And that was that. It's pretty much just, you know, ukulele, drums, bass and guitar and singing without any extras, if I'm, unless I'm forgetting something. And on this one, it's a little bit unusual because Casey, who normally plays guitar, played the bass hmm. and Coy played guitar. Uh, Casey played the guitar too, but they just happened to switch it up for this one. But otherwise, this was just a really straightforward, pretty easy one to do. You know, we didn't have it have to have any debates over how it should sound or anything. It just sort of sounds like itself. Sure. I mean, you've got stuff like the lead vocal is doubled most of the time, but then it you know, drops out in certain places. So again, would that be the kind of decision that's just made on the fly in the studio? I think that one we had played live a few times and we liked the dynamics of where how it gets quiet with the dropout. Yep. So that's probably why we decided to do that when we got into the studio. I did see you got, so you did have little high keyboards enter at some point. I think it's Casey's guitar with a... An effect. Okay. I could be remembering incorrectly. And I really like the textures of that section. So you've got the, where the guitar answers that. And then at the end of the next chorus, you've got sort of a two measure guitar solo, just that this little tiny thing that yeah. follows up <laughs> on this, you know, thing you just introduced in the previous verse. 
We have an actual guitar solo later. Where are these coming from? In the, is this stuff that came out of live arrangement? I think with those guitar riffs, he just came up with that and tried it and we liked it. I don't know if he had been doing that part live yet, but I think probably started when we introduced it at a show for the first time. And then the actual guitar solo, he's got that nice one on the right side, one on the left side that are mostly doing the same thing and then divide at the end. Yeah, he's really good at coming up with harmonic and melodic guitar solos. Yeah. Well, let me push you a little harder on the lyrics here. So we got the, uh, just to get a little specific here, we've got the Henrietta Levitt part in the beginning. So it seems to just, the farther the scandal, the fainter the, the name. And then it jumps to the, I'm working like a milkmaid, burning like a campfire, trying to get the build pay. So... Like the chorus sounds like it's the, we're kind of setting up the problem with the verses. And then the chorus is the thing that states it more definitively or answers it or something. But it seems like you've just totally shifted topic here. So tell me more about why these two ideas seem to work together to you into one song. Well, to me, I mean, obviously, (laughs) like whenever I sing it or hear it, it brings me right back to that moment where I'm sitting Mm -hmm. listening radio with a baby and thinking, you know, having all these worries and happiness and sadness all together. So for me, it makes sense because that's how it was. But then I think in writing a song, I've heard from a lot of people that it's their favorite one on that album. I think in a way it sounds kind of pretentious, but as a whole, it threads together because it's like the experience of being a woman and a mother. Uh huh. Which then ended up being the album title. So it's kind of like the linchpin, is that the word, of the album in that way? Because it has sort of all these different facets of the experience, I guess. And then the title, The Queen of the Meadow, kind of seems like, well, what is that? That doesn't make sense with the rest of the song. But I think to me, the imagery that was in my mind when I was writing it was like, I don't know if you've ever looked at tarot cards or art like that, where there's like an empress figure, kind of like an earth mother queen figure. I think that was kind of what I was thinking of to tie it all together. So there's like ancient imagery and then up to the minute, this is what I'm feeling in my life right now. And we're all in it together, <laughs> if that well, makes sense. Yeah. And then what, what connects this sort of the second and the third theme here is just the imagery that you're already in talking about yourself you know, talking about the baby as the as the vampire or a little ghost mouth that you've already got these kind of fantasy things flying around as it is, so that when you switch and if you crown me queen of the meadow, I'll wear a gown made of leaves from the hedgerow. Like I'm just one in a long line of people that feel like this, you know. So the place where these things finally come back together is right at the end. The never a rainbow, barely a mouse, never complain, don't turn back and grouse. So just like Henrietta, the unsung mother, something like that. In some ways, it's totally a stream of consciousness song. Just kind of like, I'm thinking about this, I'm listening to this, then I'm feeling this, and I'm thinking back to this again, you know. So it's a really personal song, I guess, in that way, because it's just my brain firing. (laughs) But then it's also kind of, I hope you know, that a lot of people can relate to it. Yeah, well, certainly the main expression, this I've never been, you know, it's interesting how, even though you've got nice melodic repetition, so it's still catchy, but there's not a lot of vocal repetitions. It's not like every single chorus, well, what I have labeled the chorus and then the bridge, but the bridge happens three times. So it's really two times of choruses. It's sort of, yeah, like a A section, B section, C section, I guess. Ah, C section, no pun intended. Yeah, and and they don't, and lyrically they don't repeat. They don't repeat, but I mean, there's a pattern like starts out. I've never been so afraid and then surprised and then elated. So hopefully it's a positive trend. But yeah, they kind of build on each other. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, not only that it's placement in the song and the fact that everything drops out for those two words really makes that. okay. now here's what the song is actually about is this nervousness about and everything about the Matilda effect and Henry. You know, that's just a framing device. That's just a transition. You could probably it works really well because I'm not sure how else one would introduce the song and make it sound. I like the, like the, they might be giant songs about historical figures or something. <laughs> there's, when you're giving historical information in a pop song, there's something satisfying about that. Yeah, I'm a total nerd like that. Like I love songs about history and science. So that's always going to be up my alley anyway, whenever I can work that in. And to use that as a framing device to immediately that you're not even dwelling on that. The crime there is sort of the lack of recognition, but even never complain, 
don't turn back and grouse. Well, the thing you're complaining about is not that what you're not getting enough recognition as a mother or whatever, or that mothers don't, I mean, I guess there's a, there's a little bit of mothers maybe are undervalued socially, but it's not certainly the same issue exactly as giving relative credit. It's more, can you make more precise what the connection is? Um, for a lot of it, when I'm writing it, it just comes out that way. And I'm not like sitting down thinking, okay, what am I going to say next? It's just the way it is. The good thing about these kind of discussions is that the writer is not necessarily even in a privileged position. Like it's just, we all just do stuff because it more or less feels natural and works right. But there's usually a logic to it and kind of figuring out what that might be. I just think it really works well. And I think your, your instinct, whether it was planned or not, to then, you know, go back to the Henrietta Leavitt thing for the last line. I mean, yeah, that provides a nice musical continuity, but also kind of a, a thematic continuity that you've gotten those last two lines out and it just wraps it up. And there you go. Yep. And it really is like kind of a journey through my brain at that point in time, listening to this story about her and thinking about myself and everything. Like it's kind of like a time capsule to me when I sing it or hear it. Let's bring in the second song, which is more deliberately programmatic. Yes. Don't Hush Darling, a single for charity for the Representation Project 2016. Say some words to introduce this. First of all, so this song... I guess I would say it's a work in progress in that the version that we have out, that was just our home recording, Koi and I. So it doesn't have the other guys on it, but I think we will include it on our next album, whether that be in the form it's in now or an expanded form or different form. So Don't Hush Darling, I wrote it intentionally uh, for my daughter as I call it an anti-lullaby because there's a lot of songs for kids that are trying to get them to go to sleep. So you, you say... Hush, go, you know, be quiet. And so I wanted to do something that was the opposite of that. Because I feel like for little girls, especially, a lot of the time they get the message that they need to, you know, sit down, be quiet. And I wanted to tell her that you don't have to do that. You should be heard. She doesn't need me to tell her that. She has a huge personality. But (laughs) I'm much more introverted and shy than she is. But I hope that she stays that way as she grows up. So it is an actual lullaby, but it has the message of, oh, (laughs) wake up. Yeah, and the sound of it, it started as a very quiet, almost like a lullaby tune. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up making it get loud because that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Something called Don't Hush Darling. But the root of it is kind of that folky lullaby melody.
So very cool soundscape. I mean, I can see if you took this back in the studio, sort of while you were doing other things and said, okay, well, fine, let's overdub some electric guitars and drums over the short loud part, you know, basically eight measures here. And, but it's certainly got a lot of bells and whistles right in the programming already. Yeah. And it's just, you know, vocals and ukulele. And then Koi played some cool keyboard parts. Played or programmed the bejesus out of because it sounds extremely layered. I think he just played a bunch of oh, okay, <laughs> and nothing fancy, you know, just garage band, just at home, but he can do a lot of cool stuff at home. And I like how it starts out kind of spooky and quiet with kind of a weird harmony. And that backwards accordion sounding thing, whatever that. Yeah, I, I really like English folk music. And a lot of the songs have that kind of spooky haunting. I don't know if it's a harmonium or a hurdy-gurdy or something, you know, that drone yep. sound. So I was kind of trying to make it sound like that. And then are the chordal hits, is that ukulele in that section or is that this synth harpsichord or something? I wasn't really sure. There's a like a clean ukulele and a ukulele with effect. Okay. And then keyboard. So you got so many cultural associations to draw on here. This you had mentioned specifically in your band camp right up here at a school where I once worked when it was a student's birthday, they would get to choose whether to be king, queen, prince, or princess of the day. While the boys invariably chose king, the girls, to my dismay, always end up as princess. That drive me crazy. <laughs> yeah, it would just make me sad because, not sad, like this tragedy or something, but it would bother me because um, it's true. The boys would almost always choose king. But aren't they just not cognizant of the, the political ramifications? They, they necessarily know the princess is not in charge. The princess could have you killed. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> On that cheery note. But I, I just thought, it, you know, it had stayed with me that it was interesting, that it was very clearly divided that way, like from such a young age that I can't think of any of the time the girls would choose queen. I don't know. It just sort of bothered me. And in your drawing on that, musically, in that this has sort of a Disney, I don't know, maybe if Disney has somehow co-opted the lullaby, so <laughs> that would be tragic. But I hear, I mean, certainly the reference, little kids, I have a daughter who was very young not that long ago, and you know, the Disney princess thing is just a, is a ubiquitous. Yeah, it's really prevalent, even though it's hard to even realize like how prevalent it is, how much kids are inundated with messages that you don't even notice. And that's not to say, like, I love Disney movies. I love Disney songs, you know. And they're making a good faith effort to update it now. So, you know, the Unfrozen or whatever, you know, so they're not all helpless and weak and asleep. Needing rescue, yeah. But that's still, yeah, that's the predominant thing here. Whereas the queen is evil, <laughs> presumably. Yeah. So why would you want to do that? And anyway, and that's still lower in the deck of cards than right. the, the female king. So the whole, the whole, just, we got to get rid of the whole hierarchical <laughs> image. We got to have a, a commune. Of course there's, you know, problems with, with royalty too, but, <laughs> but like I said earlier, I love, you know, history and folk stories and songs like that too. So it's just kind of fun to play with that. I like the fact, you know, especially when you're working in a home environment and you're kind of working with on hands that you've got more like these little vocal effects that you've got near the end, these ahs that I, I guess are those kind of throughout that you're not sure whether they're vocals or keyboards, or at least I'm not sure. Keyboard. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, there's vocals, of course, too, but mixed in with the keyboard effect to make it even more, I don't know, not Disney, but <laughs> sure. Fairy tale epic, I guess. And I like how at the very end, how that fades out and suddenly it's not a minor chord. I think it's just the seven tone, but this note of dissonance that comes up, you know, during the fade out. Yeah, there's definitely a haunting kind of sound. I mean, I think that a lot of fairy tales and folk stories and lullabies, you know, they're fairly creepy. Sure. So, <laughs> which is enjoyable, but. So it's all kind of playing off of that. So it always is interesting to me when somebody, when in their lyric sheet, has something that cannot be pronounced. So don't choose the last line, and, and only the second time that you'd written it here on your on your Bandcamp version of lyrics, don't choose princes, but then parentheses S. So it could be princes or it could be princess. Like, <laughs> is it, you want to mean both or you don't care? Or what? It's trying to have it both ways there. Ambiguous that it could be either. Uh -huh. But originally it was it was princess, I'll confess, the whole time. And then somebody asked me, oh, are you saying princess or princess? And I thought, oh, that's kind of good. Yeah. 
interview. <laughs> so I stole that. So now it's both. All right. So you were saying that Koi was just playing a lot of different tracks at the time. It's not like he took this into his evil lab and layered stuff for in evenings without you. No, it was just okay. <laughs> one afternoon we, and I, yeah, I had written it. And then after, I don't know if I'd recorded it yet or not, but after the election, we felt like we really wanted to put something out for charity right away. So we kind of got it ready and put it up on Bandcamp for Giving Tuesday. Ah. And we donated all the proceeds to the representation project. So it was kind of a quick decision, like the time is now, let's get this out there. And are you feeling more like the album form is becoming less useful as time goes on? Or is it still really nice to just, you know, let's just continue as you've been doing and work up. I noticed at least the last one was a little shorter, right? It was 10 songs rather than as many as you had together <laughs> over the years. I think Alan, our producer, suggested he thought 10 was a good number. But yeah, I mean, I still like making albums. I think it's very satisfying to kind of put out a, a collection altogether. But I could see both sides too, because it's in this day and age, just as fun and easy to find songs one at a time, you know, online. I think it's hard when you're an independent band to promote little bits of things all the time rather than the more typical way is to put out a whole album and have publicity that way, hopefully to get reviews and stuff like that. I'm not sure which is better, but <laughs> I don't know. I was wondering about this, you know, whether, whether in your state, are you still doing the, we release an album and now we're touring to promote that album or is it just kind of go to England when we, when we feel like it, you know, just like picking any other, are you getting it more or less or on a continuous basis or do you, do you schedule these exhausting tours that are localized to, you know, six weeks or? We haven't done that. Okay. <laughs> we just generally play close to home in the Bay Area. So everybody has jobs and all that. Everybody has jobs. Koi and I have been going to England five or six times, but just for like two weeks at a time. Is it lucrative enough to? <laughs> it's not lucrative, <laughs> but. You can fly out there. You can keep doing it. It's my favorite. I mean, it's so much fun. Uh -huh. And the people are so nice. And we've gotten to play with a lot of really great musicians over there. And people do buy CDs over there, so that's always good. Well, that seems a great way of transitioning to the third song, which is the most British thing that we're doing. <laughs> the Grasshopper Clock off of Poppy Seeds 2012. I don't know if it's British or just sounds like the British psychedelic 1968 thing, <laughs> which I suppose... San Francisco is not too different from that in terms of association. This sounds a little different, but... <laughs> so this is the one that I, I really like the production on this. This is I do too. all the bells and whistles and twinkle stick. Yes. <laughs> and actual cricket noises. <laughs> twinkle stick is what we named. Charlie kind of devised this. It's like a drumstick with this little jingly thing, I think duct taped on. So, okay. You know, I actually saw him when you were playing this live in that same gig in Britain, I think, where he suddenly has a, a little tambourine or something in his hand and then goes back to playing. And I was wondering about like, wait a second, did he just put that down? But no, it's attached to the stick. He has a few. He has one on Midsummer that he made with a little maraca taped on. I don't know if that one has its own name, though. Yeah, the twinkle stick specifically, we were kind of trying to get that crickety chirpy sound. Any introductory words about what this song is about or where you were at with this previous album, Poppy Seeds? Most of Poppy Seeds, it's kind of our California album. A lot of songs about California and the Bay Area. But Grasshopper Clock is not at all. You're right. It's a totally British inspired. The first time we toured in England, well, many times since then, but we, we went to Cambridge for the first time and they have this crazy clock on the outside of one of the colleges it's this grasshopper slash kind of monster insect thing that chomps when the hour strikes. That's a really, really cool clock. That's what inspired the song. Ants in the sugar bowl are something to behold. Shining in the silverware like little specks of gold. Milling through the sweetness like bees and honeycomb. You'll put it in your tea when we can bring some money home. Pendulum swings, the energy's unlocked Counting down the seconds like a grass on the clock Down by the river where the water meets the dock Rowing in the rhythm of the grasshopper clock When I see 
So say something about this giant arrangement here. <laughs> I mean, even just getting into the chorus where you have the barrage of vocals, those are all you, right? No, those are actually not me. So to give a bit more backstory, I guess, that first time in England, we went and toured with our friend Anton Barbeau, who was living in England. Now he lives in Berlin. But anyway, he was living in Cambridge. So we were there visiting him, playing with him. And that's where the clock is. So when I got home and I started writing the song, I had in mind that he would sing and play on it too, which he did. So some of the vocals in the chorus are him and some are me. And live, we've even had like Coy and Casey and, and Astrid too. So it can be really fun. Okay. And I see he, he even then contributed one of the songs, The Girl America, one of the central songs to the current album, right? That's right. That would explain the, I, I really like the vocal layering in that section, and I'm not even sure which part I'm supposed to be listening to, because it sort of sounds like as if you had made the harmony, cranked it up in volume, and the melody is lower or something. Yeah, it's sort of, they're all equal in importance, I guess. Mm -hmm. I always think that this is probably my favorite song that I've written. It always makes me really happy to sing it and play it, just because it, it kind of has that epic feeling. <laughs> I love songs where all the different vocal parts come together at the end. I would do that on every song if I could get away with it, but people would probably get tired of it. <laughs> Lyrics like you've got here, just to read the beginning, Ants in the sugar bowl are something to behold, shining in the silverware like little specks of gold, milling through the sweetness like bees in honeycomb. You'll put that in your tea when we can bring some money home. I was surprised that you had categorized your band as twee. <laughs> That's often used as a denigrating term, but it's... it's a. I don't know that we really are twee, <laughs> no? but people... Say okay. that because of the ukulele, so or just like okay. But it, I was thinking that these kind of lyrics suggest that these I don't know they're just fun little nature cutesy lyrics. I I'm not trying to be insulting. Where does something like this come from? So that first part is actually from a story that Anton told me when we were in England on that trip. About well, long story short, there were golden ants crawling through the sugar at this cafe that uh, he was having tea at. I did not even and know that, there were such things. So. <laughs> well, yeah, neither did I. But it kind of all comes together because, you know, grasshopper clock, there's an insect theme, right? And I don't even know if I was realizing that at the time that I was starting to write it, but all the different insects come into it, the ants, the bees, the grasshoppers, the crickets. So it all ties together that way. And then it's another one where it starts out small in scope and then opens up to being, I don't know what it's about, but to me, it sounds like it could be the end of the world or it's about the whole universe or something like that. And the whole 
time aspect, you know, each verse kind of, it starts out with seconds and it goes minutes an hour. It kind of expands that way. And then the, the actual sound of it gets bigger and bigger too. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it. You know, I was just seeing this whole song as I like nature pretty much, you know, being a, just a rejoicing in the little things and colors and nature and cool stuff. You're right. I actually wrote it sitting outside under my, another, see, it's another one where I was in the backyard. I guess that happens a lot sitting out under my my oak tree back there and kind of hearing, you know, insect sounds and feeling like that. So yeah, you're right. There's definitely a nature celebration to it. But then nothing can be just pure. So it's, you know, when I see a perfect surface, then I'll want to nick it. I have to pick it or screw something up or (laughs) do some. Exactly. (laughs) Which unfortunately, I was a little disappointed actually reading that because I had, every time I heard it, I thought it was, when I see a perfect surface, then I want to lick it. Like, that's, is that what, what other people hear? <laughs> that's another one where I'm like, well, yeah, I could go with that, you know? <laughs> well, yours is a little more coherent. It's less, less perverse, more coherent. But then as you get going, okay, heartbeats start like small electric shocks going through the motion like a grandfather clock. So what electric shocks heartbeat, you know, how does that fit into the I love nature or where, where does that come from? I think that fits more into the clock okay. imagery because, you know, the heart, which it, it is basically electrical impulses that makes a heartbeat. And that's kind of the timekeeper in your body, you know, as your pulse, I guess. So I think that's where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> right after that round, I go and on your door, I'll knock saying, meet me in an hour at the grasshopper clock. Again, that would just sound like a nice little let's have time outside. But then you have an actual Bible quote or a paraphrase. I, I looked at it. I Googled it. Yeah. <laughs> the world pathes away. And lust thereof will vanish with it. So that's actually inscribed on the clock in Cambridge. Um, ah. But yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting. And that's what kind of has a doomsday almost feeling to it. But that's probably not how they meant it in the Bible. But well, maybe it is. <laughs> and then wrapping up, when I find a puddle, then I'll always want to kick it. Which sounds like you just, you know, I had a nice nature song and I had to throw in this thing. Well, yes, now you've told me the background. So it's not random that this is thrown in, but this apocalyptic little bit. Again, you've got the non-repeating. When I try out new ideas, all I get is crickets. And earlier it was uh, when you asked me for solutions. So the, uh, I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> is that the idea? Yeah, I think it's sort of the feeling like someone wants something of you they want you to have all the answers and it's impossible to have all the answers so it's just you know cricket chirping whether that's like something personal like they're asking you or just about the mysteries of life in general but i was hoping that you would reveal them to us now ah well (laughs) i don't know crickets so to generalize a little more here where you know people write lyrics for different reasons of course and the sort of primal one, why you might get into songwriting in the first place is either because I hear stuff on the radio and I kind of want to do that too. And so maybe your lyrics are absolutely meaningless and cliche filled and just kind of like approximation of what you hear on the radio. Or, and of course these are not mutually exclusive, it's I have some personal thing that I need to get off my chest and this is why I'm driven to write because I need to expel these now, so far, the songs that we've talked about from your, uh, they all, well, the first one was, there's, there's some anxiety there, but certainly this song, there's some mostly peaceful <laughs> sentiment here. It does not sound particularly tortured. Sort of where, where are you coming out in terms of, do you even think about it in these terms of, is it just whatever happens at the time happens? Like, would you say that the majority of your songs are still underlyingly expressive or are a lot of them just like, I'm playing with words here. This is what I'm doing today. I think they're underlyingly expressive, but with playing with words too. I mean, mm-hmm. and sometimes both, like it'll start with a nucleus of an idea, trying to express something or talking about something that really happened. And then I build on that with wordplay and whatever my mind takes me. A song like, like Grasshopper Clock, it's partially sort of, like I said, I love going to England, playing in England, being there. It's almost like trying to capture what I feel like is magical about being there. Mm-hmm. Or it reminds me of that. And it's in another way, I really like a lot of other people's songs where something almost takes on kind of a mythical quality, like even if it's rooted in the ordinary, like this clock is a real clock, you can go see it, it keeps the time. But then thinking about it and writing about it, it almost 
becomes like a legend to me, like this mythical clock of the universe that's eating up the time and has, you know, it just becomes bigger than what it really started as, which is just a physical clock, a really cool physical clock. But Sure. And we saw that in Queen of the Meadow, too. Yeah, exactly. I like that in books. I like that in songs. So kind of an elevating real life into a more weirder, more mythical place. (laughs) Sure. I like the interplay between those two tendencies that either you start with wordplay or even I'm describing some concrete thing or retelling a story that like you have the beginning of this, which it could, if you just followed that through, then it would be just like, well, that's a straight up little psychedelic poem. But then you go to these little bits of self-doubt or whatever in here, which then seems to make it personal. Of course, the whole thing is personal reflection. But Or likewise, when you're expressing something personal, as you did in Queen of the Meadow, and then you move it mythological. Or if you had, I know with the Henrietta Levitt part, that that came first with that song. But I could also see starting with the personal and then these historical things or mythological things kind of come out and decorate that. I guess I like to play going between kind of a micro and macro focus. I'm always sort of aware that I'm a tiny speck in the grand scheme of things, you know, and I can focus on the tiny speck things, but then I like to open it up. (laughs) Well, maybe we should use that to introduce the final song, another from Matilda Effect, Fairy Tale Tourist. This seems like it's the single or something, right? It's at least the first song. Yes, first song. And I think... I guess it wasn't technically a single, but we did put it out maybe a little bit for some people to hear earlier. And it has a video that's fun. Yeah. Any introductory words for it? Purely, as we were talking about playing with a little bit of literary references like Grimm's fairy tales and kind of framing it that way. This is one that I don't know how personal it is to me. It kind of just came out fully fledged. But I think the narrator in the song is sort of someone who's looking for adventure but is a little bit unsure about how to go about that. Well, it's a very cool tune. I love the album. I know you're you're doing a, a vinyl thing, right? This is a throwback in more ways than one. Yeah, this is our the only one of our albums that came out on vinyl. That was all Charlie's wish, greatest wish. So we finally humored him. <laughs> well, I would purchase one, but I have a row of vinyl here and have not actually gotten my uh, record player fixed for the last like three years. <laughs> I've not put them on. But I do have some, yes, I have some final freak friends. I will, I will turn them on to this to encourage them. It is worth their purchase. Well, thanks so much for checking in with us. I think, uh, yeah, we got going eventually here. Yeah, <laughs> thank you.
All right, some grade A craftsmanship from Carly Kane and the Corner Laughers. I hope you check out cornerlaughers.com. Looks like that roots you straight to their Bandcamp page. You can read her finely crafted lyrics, listen to all four of their albums and the charity single and some other stuff right there. We've also got some interesting videos, which I will link to from the blog post corresponding to this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope you go there and subscribe to this podcast. Spread the word. Please leave a nice iTunes rating or you can share our Facebook page. As always, if you have feedback or want to let me know about your music, reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And of course, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linton Meyer signing off. Oh, 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 oh